Hello, welcome back to another episode of our show, The Blossom of Thought. Today I've got a, a very interesting guest, Mr. Edward John, an economist graduate and a professional teacher from New Zealand, and he's a podcaster too. His podcast is Conspiracy Real. You really want to listen to Conspiracy Real. And we have him here today. He's going to tell us about something quite fascinating and interesting that has been going on for a couple of decades. You know, a lot of things are said to be conspiracies today. We even censor each other down the street when somebody says one thing, people will say conspiracy. So we want to hear more about that. Welcome, Edward, to our show. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Uh, somebody once said that we have learned to fly the air like birds. We have learned to swim the ocean like fishes. And if he was living today, he will speak about we have learned to co communicate uh, with each other from far, far distant lands across the world. And that's what is happening today. You are in New Zealand. I'm in the US of A. And here we are, we are able to connect and oh, talk yeah. to each other. Yeah, it's certainly an amazing and beautiful thing, isn't it? Oh, it's a great thing, this technology. At the same time, technology seems to be a great threat to freedom and the freedom of speech, too. People have been talking about recently and how big tech has been really dealing decisively with people who are saying things that they don't agree with. Uh, yeah, I mean... Um... YouTube and the other social media platforms yeah I mean god they're really um tightening the screws uh, I mean yeah sure they kind of say okay we're doing this for your safety and everything but recently I was discussing with a gentleman and about hemp and he actually told me material about hemp was getting censored I mean come on this is hemp like an amazing material that kind of but... is out there everywhere yeah, I mean, what's, what's kind of the point in censoring it? Um, yeah, I, I was talking about this. And of course, okay, so they're censoring um, some stuff about Corona. They're censoring anti-vaxxers. They've censored people like David Icke and Alex Jones. Um, but they, they say David Icke is a Holocaust denier and um, he has anti-Semitic tones. Um, like, I'm just going to say this. Um, I have blood relatives who are murdered in the Holocaust. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly Jewish, but I am part Jewish. Um, yeah, and, and, they've, and they've censored David Icke. And I've watched like, hundreds of hours of David Icke. I've never seen him like, say anything anti-Semitic. He actually um, encourages and he praises a number of Jews. Um, he does uh, talk about Israeli apartheid a lot. And um, he questions the ownership of Israel. It is uh, owned by the Rothschilds. Uh, well, in the, in the Balfour Declaration, this was before World War II, it was agreed that the British uh, government would do their best to transfer Israel to Lord Rothschild. Um, but, but yeah, he's been um, called like anti-Semite all over the news. And I mean, I don't believe it. I, I think they're just trying to censor him and shut him up and of course um this stuff with um anti-vaxxers as well what we need to know is that anti-vaxxers largely aren't actually against vaccinations they actually want the vaccinations but they want them to be regulated as uh, robert kennedy uh, junior said jfk's uh, nephew he he's been a very big critic 
of uh, how vaccinations are regulated, it does seem they put a lot of unnecessary uh, substances into these vaccines. And the regulation on them isn't good. And at the end of the day, we are putting them into our body. So I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, calling for more regulation. So anti-vaxxers shouldn't actually be largely called anti-vaxxers. They should be called like uh, pro-regulation vaxxers. Yeah, and- um, Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, thank you. Um, and then I, I was just going to say, um, with Corona, I mean, yeah, there are people um, saying at the moment, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a safety risk that, um, like, they need to shut people up so they can get it under control. And it's probably um, their strongest argument to censor. But it does seem that a lot of um, people who just question the statistics are getting censored. And of course, the problem with censorship uh, censorship is that um it just kind of it does it just reinforces people's beliefs it doesn't actually persuade anyone that they're wrong they just think oh they, they're censoring me i must be right that's what they largely think and i mean the argument is for these uh big platforms is that oh they're owned um by like people i mean is their right to like censor people off their platform but the way they've done it is they've kind of monopolized or they've controlled social media with an oligarchy. And uh, when, the, when this is the case, I mean, um, monopolies have been broken up in the past for being corrupt, such as David Rockefeller's uh, oil monopoly over the US. I think that was about 80 odd years ago. It was broken up by, I think it was Roosevelt. Um, yeah, maybe don't quote me on that. But uh, yeah, um, and they broke it up. Um, well, yeah. So it'd be a fairer industry. Oh yeah, I agree with you. I have a book just right in front of me. It's called The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power. So the Rockefeller was seriously disturbed and his company, Standard Oil, was broken down under the administration of President Roosevelt. And it was really a big issue. But um, I just want to go back to the coronavirus thing before we get into other things such as the oligarchy, big media, and all stuff like that. Now, I understand that in New Zealand, New Zealand is one of the countries that has done well in containing the virus. So we are told in the news, I'm not in New Zealand, you are in New Zealand. So it, this makes a, an interesting discussion because you are on the ground and they say, those are just news that I get while I'm here in the new in the US. On the other hand, some people talk about violations of people's freedom in the way the country has dealt with the matter. Is that a true reflection of what has or is happening on the ground in New Zealand? Um, well, I've got to be honest, um, New Zealand's probably one of the best places to be at the moment. Um, I mean, they, they've kind of um, got it under control. They, they say it's been eradicated in New Zealand, um, but I, I haven't really um, had any problems here. Like, I've, I think they've handled it well. Um, basically, um, we were in lockdown for a month, then they lifted the restrictions. Then there were a few cases, and they increased the level of restrictions for a bit. But it really didn't last long and it didn't make that much difference. Um, I mean, the only big thing in New Zealand is we've lost a load of tourism because people can't come here. And you can't, I don't think you can even leave New Zealand um, unless if you're a full uh, like passport holder, it, it, it sounds like from what I've heard. So 
but basically, yeah, New Zealand's managed to clean it up very quickly because it's an island nation. It's right at the bottom of the globe. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, no, things have things are pretty good here. Like, um, yeah, what what bad things have you heard about New Zealand? Oh, well, I was listening to Dr. Buta. I, I think you must be familiar with him. He's one of those that have gone against. He says he's not anti-vaccine, he's anti-stupidity. And he says uh-huh. he's got some clients in, in New Zealand and they talk about that the lockdown has violated the people's rights and the way they've gone about it. And, and that's about it that I heard about in New Zealand. I didn't hear much, but I know that it is one of those success stories in terms of containing the virus. Unlike here in the US, now we are talking about the second wave. And the Dr. Fauci, if I remember very well, he was speaking about that uh, we are about to have COVID-19 for quite some time, mm-hmm. not just in the US, uh, in the world. So I had the interest about New Zealand and how they've gone about containing the virus. Mm-hmm. But that being that, uh, you have already mentioned, you have given me your opinion of what's going on, the, the success story, of course. Mm-hmm. I, I want us to move to something quite interesting here that you is at the foundation of your podcast. I've said that you are a podcaster, conspiracy real. What inspired you to come up with a podcast relative to conspiracy? Well, um, I've actually got uh, quite a bit of a history around conspiracies. Um, so it kind of started off when I was around, um, I'm 29 today. It started off when I was around 19 or 20. Um, basically, um, I did listen to a lot of uh, actually gangster rap back then, a lot of Tupac and all of this stuff. And um, basically what they say is that the war on drugs in the US is um, about oppressing in um, the black community in the US. And then, um, like when I was around 20, I watched a uh, video about 9-11. And as soon as I saw that video, I knew 9-11 was an inside job. And I mean, there might be some people that are very doubtful if 9-11 was an inside job. I could get into this a bit later. But I will say like, um, yeah, the person with the highest IQ in the US, Chris Langdon, he's come out and he said that 9-11 was an inside job. Um, but yeah, when, when I watched this video, it was a very surreal moment. I went through about a week of being very shocked about it all. And um, it was a funny thing. I knew this um, teacher, he, he was a Cambridge University scholar um, and he taught me um, at school. So I went and I, I, I just knew he, it was a funny thing. I just knew that he knew all of this um, like conspiracy stuff and like all this stuff about the Illuminati. It was very weird. I just knew. I went and I confronted about, um, confronted it. Uh, so I confronted him about it. And he, um, yeah, he said it was all true and it, it was all real. And then, so I started researching obsessively into conspiracies, into Illuminati, into New World Order. And as soon as I did that, um, this guy actually developed terminal cancer and then he died, which of course 
shook me up a lot because, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought he was assassinated. So I, I went through a long period of time feeling very guilty about all of this. And yeah, I, I didn't really handle the situation very well at the time, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I, I did suffer from some uh, depression and everything. But so when I was at university studying economics, I mean, I spent most of my time on a laptop, to be honest, just researching all of this conspiracy stuff, trying to learn as much as possible. And I mean, the more I've researched and, and the more that's unfolded, I mean, uh, so for example, like nine years ago, I said, um, which I really want to get into, um, that actually a world war was planned. I know it sounds crazy, but yeah, I can get into that later. And we were nowhere near a world war back then. And now we're a hundred seconds to midnight, according to the doomsday clock. Uh, so, I mean, this, this stuff is, I've really been motivated to, because I think it's so important for humanity. I've really been motivated to learn as much of this as possible. And now um, I think um, I'm confident enough um, to share it on camera and yeah, on audio. And I think I'm knowledgeable enough to explain it properly. Cause I mean, I've been just arguing with people online for years and years and years. And now I think I'm ready to uh, take it up to the next level. I mean, I've argued with thousands upon thousands of people online for the last nine years. So, so yeah, that's, that, that's really my origin story. Yeah. Today, when we talk about conspiracy, we, I've mentioned earlier on how, you know, it's pretty much like the terrorist thing that one man's terrorist is another man's friend. Um, people have been called terrorists when they, are, they view themselves and when you really come close to the case, they are freedom fighters, but they will be termed terrorists. We realize that in some of these uh, 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 nations, people who are, who are in the opposition party, they may, be, they may use law against them to claim them down so as to shut them off and call them terrorists. Almost the same thing with conspiracies. Today, yeah. we live in a world of digital deluge. There is all kinds of information, very disturbing. And as a matter of fact, I read some book the other time that uh, mentioned that there is just so much information that compared to the 15th century, we now consume as much data in a single day than an average person in the 1400s will have absorbed in an entire lifetime. Wow. That statistic suggests that if you are ignorant, you have made that choice to be ignorant. But the interesting thing about this is that people choose what to believe and what not to believe. So mm. how does one get to tell that something is conspiracy something is not conspiracy because it seems like it's a it's a, it's a polarized it, it presents a polarized or a binary world where there is the truth depending what your definition of truth is and then there is conspiracy so how does one get to tell that this is conspiracy oh yeah you really hit the nail on the head like um people yeah they really um do largely believe what they want to and um I mean, if you want to believe, I mean, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there. They're complete and utter nonsense. 
And uh, this is one of the problems with um, enlightening people about conspiracy topics. If you want to believe in a conspiracy, um, I'd say um, in some cases, you're going to have to want to believe in truth and you're going to have to want to hand your ego and your biases in at the door. Um, but really, you need, you need really good logic and research to believe in certain conspiracies. So like, um, yeah, I think this would be quite a good time for me to get into 9-11. So um, with 9-11, I mean, it's a very sensitive topic. Um, a lot of people died. A lot of people went to war and fought in the Middle East. And a lot of people do not want to hear that they've been fooled or, you know, maybe they fought in Iraq or their family fought in Iraq. And there's a large element of them just not wanting to believe that 9-11 was an inside job. Then, of course, there are people who just, they they do actually believe it, but they won't admit that they believe it because um, they don't understand um, where 9-11 is leading. They just kind of think, oh, our country just did this to get that oil. I can still make money. I can still go on holiday. I don't care. So with 9-11, I mean, you've really got to analyze it. One thing for a start, when you're looking into a conspiracy, you got to look at who is saying it's a conspiracy. So if we look at the flat earth theory, it's complete nonsense. Not a single scientist says uh, the earth is flat. No one of any respect in like academia says it is flat. No one. If we look at 9-11, thousands and thousands of architects, engineers and professors say 9-11 was an inside job. There's the head of all U.S. military intelligence, Albert Stubblebine, said it was an inside job. Dario Foe, who won a Nobel Prize, he said it was an inside job. And then, of course, Chris Langdon, who has the highest IQ in the U.S., says it was an inside job. So there, there's something to go on. But really, I mean, it's, it's probably not a good idea just to believe what anyone tells you like that. It is best to come to your own conclusion. But this is kind of just a, a guide, a path that... Um, you see a bit of light on a path and you can say, okay, this path might be worth walking down. So we walk down the path of 9-11 and we look into all the inconsistencies of and things that are impossible and things that don't make sense. And there's just too many things. I mean, one, I'll, I won't go into all of the evidence, but I'll tell you the best bits of evidence. So there was a professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark he analysed the rubble of the trade centres and he found nanothermite in the dust samples and he published it in a scientific journal and he found nanothermite in the dust sample. And nanothermite, I mean, it's, um, it's an explosive and, there was, and it burns at an incredibly hot temperature and there was absolutely no reason for nanothermite to be at the trade centre. It's only really used with the military and um, I mean, there's no mistakes because they say, oh, maybe it was and then critics. And then you look at the other side of the argument and you can see the inconsistencies, inconsistencies and nonsense in the other side of the argument. Like the other side of the argument says, oh, thermite, um, things that look like thermite uh, can be created using the different materials in the building, et cetera, et cetera. But what we got to know is this is nanothermite and nanothermite is distinguishable from thermite. So, I mean, this already, it doesn't make sense. And there's a massive hole in the story. Then what else can we look at? Um, the molten steel, of course, that was found in the trade centers. 
firefighters, scientists, journalists, journalists at the New York Times, such as James Glanz, professors, they've all said that there was molten steel at the World Trade Centers after the planes hit. And molten steel, you've got to remember, this steel is melted steel. And um, yeah, and, and the thing is, again, you look at the other side of the argument, and they're talking nonsense. They either say there was no molten steel. The NIST, who refused to admit there was molten steel, and they refused to uh, describe it in their report. I mean, this, this is clearly nonsense. There clearly was molten steel. And then other people, they try and change the argument. So they're like, okay, but the fires weakened steel, and that's why it collapsed. And like, okay, you can say that, but the fires wouldn't have created molten steel at the trade centers. It was not, it could not have uh, burned hot enough to melt the steel and there was molten steel. And you can see how the argument is twisted. And what, this is why it confuses so many people because they're not getting the proper side of the argument. And then when you read the media articles, they ignore the evidence that, um, well, apart from James Glanz, it seems to the New York Times, but when other articles such as articles at the BBC or whatever talk about 9-11 inside job, they completely misrepresent um, the argument for 9-11 truthers. And of course they don't give a platform to these professors such as Niles Harriet. So when you find inconsistencies like that, I mean, there's so many other things as well. I mean, this is just like two of the keyest bits of information. I'll just go over another one. Of course, the Pentagon didn't get footage of a plane hitting it, which just seems absolutely ludicrous. And when you see Dario Fo's documentary, even shows that the footage, the surrounding footage um, that would have showed a plane hitting the Pentagon was confiscated by um, like a black ops FBI team. It, it's so it's just too much. As I said, I won't go into it. Oh, I could talk about this for about three hours. But yeah, you just got to look at the inconsistencies and you, you've got to look at both sides of the argument and you've got to determine that, okay, they're talking rubbish. These lot are legit. These lot make sense. These lot have the logic. That I mean, there was at the end of the day, there was nanothermite in the rubble and there was molten steel in the rubble. And, the, and yeah, I think on that alone, um, scientists should admit that it was an inside job. Uh, one last thing I'll say on 9-11, actually recently a university in Alaska did a, a computer modeling study on World Trade Center number seven, which, um, yeah, it free fell and they missed it out in the media a lot. And it concluded it could not have collapsed due to fires, like people said. And well, there's even a video of a BBC reporter reporting World Trade Center number seven collapsed before it collapsed. It's, yeah, so you really just got to make a judgment call on the whole thing and you just gotta you just gotta be like okay i want the truth the truth is important i'm not gonna care about um you know my personal um preferences like i mean you just gotta take the truth and it, it can be a very hard thing to do so yeah you've really just gotta want the truth in order to receive it yeah yeah Somebody in the 1800s once defined truth as the knowledge of things as they are, as they were, as they are to come, suggesting that truth is just like any other principle, universal principle, it's unchanging and unchangeable. You can fool other people or bluff them and they twist things. We usually speak in street language that he's twisting the truth 
Whereas the truth is just truth. Wait, is it? It's just the truth. You can change it. For instance, if coming to my apartment, I fall into a ditch and I've got bruises on my shoulder, on my face and on my elbows, that may wear out and eventually I can heal and nobody you know, can tell that I once fell. But I know that's a fact. That's something that happened. That's truth. You can't change that. It doesn't matter how much time goes by and uh, whether I age or don't age. Still, I fell into a ditch one time coming. So that's the truth. I hear in your speaking that there's an appeal to authority. That's because that's one of the things uh, that uh, people want to address when it comes to how we know. You know, that these are philosophical questions, how we know. And one of the ways we want to say we know we appeal to authority. For instance, uh, you are talking about professors, you are talking about scientists, you are mm-hmm. talking about uh, some people are politicians who say that 9-11 was an inside job. And you go on to speak about molten steel, how could you find it there and all the like. So the being an attorney and being used to evidence and trying to understand, uh, you know, what truth is, how to decide that this professor or this authority is authority, is speaking the truth. Because we all go online and research, we are not talking of first-hand experience. So how do you get to conclude that this is at a BS this is the truth. Yeah, well, it can be an incredibly difficult challenge to overcome. Um, but re- really, you've got to... So this guy um, about nanothermite, I mean, why wasn't he in the media? Why wasn't he brought on? And why wasn't he questioned? Why was there so much silence why was no why was he not challenged by the scientific community so you really got to see how other people react i mean this guy he's not a nobody and he definitely studied uh, the rubble um so yeah i mean that that's another thing i mean if there's silence around uh you know someone presenting big evidence like this i mean you that's usually an indication that they're telling the truth because, I mean, you know, they bring they bring on all sorts of people onto TV. I haven't actually seen, I've only seen Niles Harriet on like foreign um, TV stations. I mean, they brought on like the kind of one of the big people at Flat Earth. He's called Mark Sargent. They bring him on TV like all the time. I mean, why bring this guy onto TV? They give him a platform. Why not give someone like Niles Harriet a platform? Why not give someone like Dario Foe a platform? So yeah, you've you've really got to see um, what the what the challenge is to their evidence, and the reality is the challenge to their evidence is even non-existent or it's just uh, bullshit smears. Like for example, I, I know someone tried to write an article about Niles Harriet, and they just tried to call him a crackpot. But why not? I mean, he wrote an academic journal. I mean, where the uh, challenges from the scientific community come from i've i've seen any so yeah that's that's what i'd say so when from your research when they say 9-11 is an inside job mm. what does it mean what do they go on to describe or to talk about 
as the reality about 9-11? The reality is that um, the U it's, it's not actually the US government. What we need to realize is that Western governments were actually controlled by an oligarchy. This oligarchy is the super elite, it's the super wealthy, it's the people that control all uh, the biggest banks, the central banks, they control the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements is kind of the apex of it all. And you, you, you got to realize um, that our governments are bought and paid for to a large degree. We do have some democracy, but we do not live in a proper democracy. Um, for example, Noam Chomsky, one of the most cited academics in the world, has said we're controlled by an oligarchy. President Jimmy Carter, he said we're controlled by an oligarchy. And I mean, you look at all these groups, like where the super elites meet, like the Bilderberg Group, Bohemian Grove, which is barely ever mentioned in anything, where all the super powerful meet up. And um, yeah, I mean, you've got to conclude that these lot were behind like these uh, conspiracies. They're the only people who uh, like have the power. They're the only people who have the control over the media. They're the only people that could have possibly have pulled it off. So when, um, yeah, when we're talking about an inside job, what we're saying is that um, the, these super elites, these oligarchs, they um, put in the mechanisms in place uh, to destroy the towers. One thing they did, there was a lot of money. Um, there was there was over, I think it was $2.3 trillion in the accounting department of the Pentagon. And that got blown up and it went missing. There was a hell of a lot of uh, transactions in the trade centers. They, they all went missing. I mean, money just didn't go into thin air. It went to somewhere and it, it went into like an offshore tax haven. Uh, loads of people lost a hell of a lot of money the day those towers blew up. But that's, that's just a, a part of it. What they really wanted to do was go into the Middle East and they wanted to, there's been a plan to like invade the Middle East and uh, like steal the resources. And uh, ultimately, I mean, they're trying to start a war against Russia and China. And I know this sounds mad at the moment, but I will explain that. Um, in a bit so this um yeah so basically this oligarchy it has a plan of uh, full spectrum dominance and uh, it, it wants to uh, it wants to just dominate the whole world and ultimately what it wants is a one world government i i, I can explain this all now um so basically uh, before yeah, we, did, oh yeah, go on, go on. yeah, before we, you, we go on and, and explain your research and what we've discovered, I just want to backtrack a little bit. Um, when you talk about those who pull the strings, somebody once said, in fact, there's an old saying that he who pays the piper decides the tune. So mm. in politics, it appears that there are people who are always pulling the strings at the backstage. When we talk about those who are pulling the strings and you've mentioned the Rothschild and there are people who want to talk about the Rockefellers, uh, these kind of families, I've watched some of those videos that uh, demonstrate or portray these families as to be the powerful folks that are running the show in the world. Does this go back to the oil industry way back in the late yes. 1800s? Because I've 
was, as I've mentioned, I was reading the book, The Prize, that talks about the oil boom in America, in Russia, in um, in Europe, and selling going to the to the Middle East and the eastern side of the world, and all it, and how these families they found the same the Rockefellers and the Rothschild and the Dutch a family or a Dutch company, they find themselves having this high level of competition relating to oil and trying to buy each other so that they can make these big movement that will you know, determine all prices and all the like. Unfortunately, as we've mentioned, the Rockefellers or Standard Oil who was, uh, whose executive, main executive was uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, unfortunately, they were wiped out or they were broken down by the American government under Roosevelt. Can we say this whole thing that leads to these conspiracies and people behind the stage, I mean, uh, people who are at the backstage pulling the strings goes back to that time that I've just explained? Uh, yes, uh, we can. I mean, they uh, kind of established... Um, the control uh, generation after generation over the governments uh, by controlling all the big resources, by controlling key industries. I mean, it, it, we can trace it all the way back to the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Rothschild, um, yeah, he financed like both sides of the Napoleonic Wars. And obviously this money gets paid back, paid back over time. And they make loads and loads of money out of it, of course. And they, they financed... Uh, not just the Rothschilds. So then what happened, what we need to realize is um, there were all these big banks. And if you really want uh, to have validation on what I'm about to say, there's um, this professor, uh, he's dead now. He was called Carol Quigley. He was a professor at Georgetown University. And he actually had the privilege of studying the elite records. And he actually wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope. And he explains how all these uh, big bankers like uh, dominated governments. I mean, Napoleon once said um, like bankers are above governments because uh, governments can't bite the hand that feeds. Uh, well, there's a, even a quote from, uh, I think, Nathan Rothschild. He said, give me control of a country's central bank and I care not who writes the laws. And there's, there's plenty of, um, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, he warned of the bankers, yeah, he was a president. Um, Andrew Jackson, he was a president. He warned of the bankers uh, controlling the government. So what we've got to realise is um, they, they really do have the control. And then after World War II, they set up um, what was known as the current financial system and the Bank for International Settlements. And the Bank for International Settlements is at the apex of control, as Carol Quigley explains. And so basically the Bank for International Settlements uh, kind of loans money to governments and central banks. Central banks, they, they print the money. But I mean, this money, it's not just given to the governments. This money's printed or made and it's got to be paid back with interest. And yeah, and then they, they've also, of course, got relationships with the big banks such as Goldman Sachs. So it's literally a pyramid scheme and right at the top we've got the bank for international settlements and it kind of all filters down and it's just a massive money making machine and the amount they they've made off financing um governments is absolutely staggering it's 
absolutely trillions upon trillions. And yeah, I mean, all this money, um, I mean, the Bank for International Settlements, um, it actually supported the Nazi economy throughout World War Two. And I mean, yeah, so it's been lending all this money around World War Two and and before that, World War One, all these banks uh, lent money, and all of this has to be paid back. And I think they, they still haven't even paid back all the money from World War Two. The governments, um, I'm pretty sure they haven't even paid it back yet. As so, it's really um, they've really got every like government just caught in debt. I mean, the UK recently, I know that's a trillion. Uh, pounds in debt I think the US government is trillions and trillions in debt so when you see these figures and they're very quiet about these figures in the media like you got to think who are we in debt to and <laughs> these are the people we are in debt to and I'm afraid they are the ones who um, you know they uh, they they call a lot of the shots because of it they are above governments they are above countries and um yeah, I mean, some people say, oh, we're in debt to China, but that, that's that's not true. They buy up the debt. Uh, just wanted to clear that up. So, so yeah, and I mean, they, they bought up all these key industries. If you do the research, you can see they they um, created a secret society, um, the Roundtable Group, uh, to dominate Africa in the, um, I think, the 1800s. Uh, they financed like, all the big railroads. They got control of all the oil industry the steel industry i mean they it's been quite amazing um how they've managed to do it i mean um there's research that goes back to they're actually inspired by another secret society called the black nobility which dominated um the catholic empire a few hundred years ago and this is kind of um how they were inspired or even where they had their roots from so yeah, um, did you have any other questions? I mean, I could explain um, how it all started off, like, which I really want to do. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think I'm impressed by the you know the background that you have given because I just wanted to lay down the foundation of what you talk about when you talk about current events. You know, I'm a strong believer that in order to understand what's going on today, we have to go back to history. We are history. The now that we speak about as now is really history, something that's happened in the past. So I just wanted you to give some kind of background to this. That's why I was provoking you going to the 1800s and you went <laughs> way <laughs> back to the Na Napoleonic uh, Wars on Napoleon and stuff and his funding and the Rothschild and all this. A lot of the things that I come across as I just read out of good books, I'm not a person really that into conspiracies, but when somebody says he has invested time, I love to have the knowledge so that I can have a basis of research. So I'm excited to hear what you mean. But now uh, when you talk about uh, the banks or some people putting the strings uh, at this high level, and I'm sure this is just a percentage of the people in the world who are running the show in terms of what we're explaining mm -hmm. and how we, we, we become uh, what I would call a really nuanced uh, modern day slavery and the slavery of all nations. Because once you get yourself into debt, that's what, as far as I understand what you're saying, that's what they want, those who are behind yes. us. You know, I learned something about Libya, that Libya they didn't have 
a debt from the IMF, World Bank or anything, because they had great resources for themselves. And uh, our good brother in Africa, because I'm from Africa, I've been here in the US for, for a little bit over a year. Our good brother, uh, Muammar Gaddafi was wiped out. Now the country is in shambles. Now we seeing it, obviously you will, if you will not be shocked to get the news that now there are people who are, I mean, the, the whole government now must be established on the basis of debt and people are going in getting all these uh, minerals such as oil and stuff like that. So I would like you to go a little bit more into this slavery that is going on, which is quite sadly, as I say, that happens through the buying of governments or getting government involved into trillions and trillions of, uh, in some of the countries, it's billions of debt, which is really unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, the interest um, rates that the IMF uh, jacks up for the International Monetary Fund, which lends to a lot of these governments, um, yeah, it's quite ludicrous and it just keeps countries in perpetual debt. And of course, if you keep countries in perpetual debt, you don't allow them to flourish economically. If you don't allow them to flourish economically, um, they become more corruptible um, because nations, poorer nations are easier to corrupt because uh, they need the money. And not only that, um, they can say, oh, well, if you want us to keep lending you money, then um, you'll be quiet. Otherwise, um, you know, otherwise these governments, um, well, they, if they run out of money, what are they going to do? They're going to be riots and they're not going to be able to pay for every, anything. Like the people will go crazy. There, there could be an uprising or, you know, they, people could starve to death. So they, they really become um, the IMF's bitch, <laughs> essentially. I think there's a good book about it. I think it's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Um, yeah, I haven't actually read the book, but yeah, that I'm pretty sure that um, goes into detail about it. But yeah, um, as uh, Napoleon said, I mean, there's a fantastic website and video called The Money Masters, and it's got some amazing quotes about all of this. And yeah, I mean, Napoleon says that um, the, the banker is above the government. Let's go to war. You, okay. That's one of the things that ties into conspiracies. And um, so many wars have been fought in this world, mm -hmm. at least for the past hundred years. And wars are ugly. I think everybody will agree because so many people die there. And the unfortunate thing there, it's not that you need to be tough and fit and get out there and that you'll be able to conquer. Today they use all kinds of, today we use all kinds of weapons. There's biological warfare, there are, you know, all kinds of arsenal, bombs, tankers and all that. So it creates a very nasty uh, way of living when we occasionally have to go to war. What have you discovered as far as conspiracy and war is concerned? Well, it's probably been the biggest finding that I've ever seen in my life, um, to be honest. And brace itself, this is going to sound a bit mad, but what we got to realize is um, that World War One and World War Two and World War Three were planned 
back in the 19th century. And I know, I know, I know immediately um, a lot of people will be like, no way, no way. But yeah, I mean, this is what I really wanted to explain now. So basically, there was this letter written by um, Albert Pike. Albert Pike was a well-known genius, 33rd degree Freemason, um, Confederate general. Um, and Albert Pike, there's a big debate whether this is a hoax or not. I'm going to explain why it's not a hoax. Um, he wrote a, a letter in the 19th century um, and it, it described World War I and World War II with perfect accuracy and a World War III, which we haven't um, had yet, but which I think we're going into with 9-11. But anyway, so for example, um, with World War II, um, he said, uh, like, Nazism must be destroyed by, uh, by uh, sorry, it must be destroyed uh, to use Zionism to establish a state of Israel in Palestine. And okay, uh, and what, so what's the proof that we know this isn't a hoax? Okay, so S. Brent Morris, he's a 33rd degree Freemason. He's a headmaster and Freemason researcher. S. Brent Morris, he wrote a book called A Complete Idiot's Guide to Freemasonry. And in it, he said that Albert Pike's letters were in a book published um, by, um, uh, what's, what's his name? Sorry, Santiago. Santiago and this guy in Chile, he was, um, he was part of the Catholic Church. He published this book in 1925, which um, showed these letters. World War II started in 1939. In 1925, the Nazis were just a tiny party in Germany. So how did this guy, uh, Cardinal, Cardinal Santiago, um, how did he, how did he possibly predict that World War II uh, would happen? I mean, this is what he wrote in 1925, 14 years before World War II. Nazism must be destroyed to bring a sovereign state of Israel in Palestine. And I mean, th this by itself uh, raises, you know, a lot of eyebrows. Um, but then we look at some other evidence to suggest that World War II was in fact planned. The Rockefellers, they actually um, create the eugenics movement that led to the Nazis. Anthony Sutton, he was a research fellow at Stanford University at the Hoover Institute. And he writes a book, it's called Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. And he explains how Wall Street um, cultivated the Nazi regime, how they grew um, Hitler. And he also writes a book called um, Wall Street and the Rise of the Bolshevik Revolution. And when you look at um, what, I mean, and this of course ties in um, with how World War I, um, this, yeah, this ties in with World War I if you look at the letters. So we know Wall Street financed the Nazis and the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. We know this. And then Anthony Sutton, he's kind of like the godfather of the Illuminati um, believers. And, and none of his work has ever been challenged. It's just silence on it. Anthony Sutton also writes a book called America's Secret Establishment and explains how the Skull and Bone Society at Yale is a chapter of the original Illuminati. And the Skull and Bone Society explains how it coordinated the finances 
of the Nazi regime and it coordinated the finances of the Bolshevik regime. And we know it, the Skull and Bones is a chapter of the original Illuminati because it has the same initiation ceremony as the Illuminati. It comes from a German secret society. Uh, I mean, this group with the Farm Claw broke into the Skull and Bones and it found out all this stuff, I think, um, 200 odd years ago. So we look at all this stuff, we see that, and, and then a bit more colour, Winston Churchill, he wrote an article on Zionism versus Bolshevism in the Sunday Herald, and yeah, the, even the Guardian newspaper reported this, and, and he has sent, is this really big quote, and he essentially says that the Illuminati survived and was still operating, and he wrote this in 1920. I believe he was an, a, polit, a high politician, or I think he was a minister or something at the time when he wrote this. So we've got Winston Churchill saying the Illuminati survived into the 20th century. We've got Anthony Sutton proving the Skull and Bones is a chapter of the Illuminati and that Wall Street and the Skull and Bones financed the Nazis and the Bolsheviks. And we've got this guy, Cardinal Rodriguez, who said this Albert Pike's plan is all true. And it predicted World War II. And he predicted World War II with perfect accuracy 14 years before it even started. So this stuff is really surreal. And funnily enough, I tried to buy a 1925 uh, copy of, um, of Cardinal Rodriguez's book, and it's impossible to buy. There are all these later reprints. The later reprints don't say it, but this 1925 copy is impossible to buy. I cannot buy it, and um, which raises some more questions. But as I said, S. Brent Morris, he clearly says that um, this letter that detailed three world wars was in a book in 1925 so um i mean and this and so when it describes world war three it says um it will be started using israel against the islamic world and once you realize that 9-11 was an inside job and once you realize that israel is trying to attack iran it really seems that albert pike's uh, plan for World War Three is unfolding in front of our very eyes today. So, yeah, and so that's the that's. I mean, this is a lot of information. I know a lot of people find it very hard to believe, but I would say please look at all the material I've um, cited, and I, it really, it's really crazy. It really is. Um, I mean, yeah, I I, I actually was um, enlightened about this by by a reverend like and it was yeah quite surreal then what else can i say about wars oh yeah so, before before you go yes. on to speak about more about wars you know you have just uploaded a lot of information for mm. anyone to follow i think we don't have all the time in the world to go systematically or step by step uh, dealing with some of these things that you are raising and you are also referring to the so-called authority. Um, okay. The question that I have, which, uh, you know, relates to the war issue that wars are funded, wars are planned. In fact, that's what you were suggesting and what you have said. What's in it for the one who is always instigating war, causing terror in the world, a lot of people dying. You know, World War II left the world so terribly devastated. Mm -hmm. 
people decided, they say that they distaste war and we have never gone back to war at that big scale again because of the devastation of World War II. I forget the statistics of how many people died there and how much did that cost? Because once you go into war, there are a lot of costs. It's another argument to talk about those who, who make a lot of money, who are capitalistic minded because they are making the weapons of war. That's another argument. But I just want to know what's in it for those who sit down and plan war from what you are saying. Okay, well, as you said, they do make money through all the finance and the industry. Um, but ultimately, um, I mean, this plan um, was to restructure the world to get power. I mean, it's all about weakening Europe. Um, it's called the Hegelian dialect. It's all about um, dividing, creating two opposing forces. And when you control the opposing forces, you control the outcome. So what it it was about was um, um, becoming the superpower, but ideally just, um, I mean, the ultimate plan is to just, it, it is world domination. I know it sounds something crazy out of some like bad James Bond movie, even, but it, <laughs> I mean, what, what can I say? The, the, the evidence is there. I mean, these guys aren't imaginary. They've got all the proof. I mean, um, yeah, I'm, like um, so, it, it's just about it's just about domination, control, population control, and um, yeah, it, it's all about power, really. I mean, um, they had to do all these things. For example, um, having all these world wars it stopped China from rising to the top. It stopped Japan from rising to the top. And um, some people might say that's not a bad thing, but when, but I mean, the way it came about was wrong. And I mean, as I said, the ultimate plan is the third world war. And I, I believe we, we don't need it. We've, we've got renewable tech. We've got tech to mine planets in space. We've got tech to spread out to the planets. We've got all the potential in the world. And ultimately I just, I just think it, it, we don't need a world war and it's, it's wrong. And, yeah, we, we can change. Oh, yeah, that's quite fascinating that uh, this all about this whole thing is about divide and control. Mm. And that's how throughout uh, the centuries, uh, people have been able to conquer and overcome. When you find the powerful people, divide them. I know in Africa, as you follow the news there, uh, you realized you will have an incumbent government and then you will have what are called the ripples. And when you follow what's going on, who is funding the ripples, it's not the Africans. And it comes from the West. A lot of the African leaders have spoken about the others, they even died and others are, uh, are being threatened because they are, they are just disclosing this thing that the Western powers, they are coming into Africa and causing a lot of havoc and people are fighting. We've got rebels and incumbent government and they're able to put up their own puppet governments there. And eventually it's more about getting the minerals. And so I do get the idea of a divide and, and, and control. It's all about power hungry and, 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 and all the Like I see that you want to chip in there, go ahead. <laughs> oh, very uh, intuitive of you, yes. Um, well, what, um, 
we got to realize is that empires have been rising and falling for thousands of years. I mean, of course, there was Genghis Khan and there was the Persian Empire. And this is one of the things that it really came from, why they decided. Because, I mean, the world is, um, to the big players, it is a chessboard. And on the chessboard, you've got multiple players. <laughs> it's, it's a funny looking chessboard, but, you know, we've got, We've got some big people in Russia playing. You've got some big people in China playing. There used to be big people in Japan playing. but like Japan play a bit, but they're not as much as they used to. So this is why this plan was made. They, they really fought it out ahead. And they really had a vision of how to win the chessboard. And, I mean, this is the thing. Like, the only way to really win it is to have a one-world government. And you need a one-world government... Uh, and you, unless if everyone's going to agree on it, which I don't, I don't think they will, you, you do need to destroy the competition. You need to win the chess sports. And of course, we do know there are plans for a one world government. Rockefeller wrote in his memoirs, um, he plans for a one world government. Paul Warburg at the Council of Foreign Relations, he wrote uh, it was a one world government. So yeah, I, as I said, it does it does sound mad, but when you really think of it from a tactical point of view and from a chess playing point of view, it's not so mad. And as I said, I mean, the evidence is all there. It's all on the internet. You can read Anthony Sutton's work for free. If you look hard enough, he's got PDFs on Google. So, yeah. I was just thinking about international organizations. Yes. Regional groupings. They are the international organizations such as the United Nations with its various agencies or arms, how do those participate in bringing about the world government that you are talking about from your research? Oh, um, well, the big international- They are very highly for bringing about this world government because when you, mm-hmm. once you think about world government and what he has written, in his memoir, Rockefeller, you mm. start looking today what is happening. And we've got mm. this one body. And I had a, a professor, not a professor, but working for Congress. He came to university where I was, and he was talking about that. If you try to do anything through the UN, it's impossible because it's all China. So if you want to act, the US want to act, they were not going to act through the UN because it's all China. Now, seemingly, China is calling the shots, is pulling the strings. They are a really big power. They are at the stage. Mm. They seem to be taking, uh, pushing aside the US. I see Donald Trump has been having some kind of boxing or economic boxing match or political boxing match with them. But where it is, I'm just trying to understand from your research about these organizations such as, you know, during World War One, they after World War One, there was a League of Nations, and they felt like it wasn't working. And they, yeah. they are all the politics behind that. Now you have the United Nations, who was established after World War Two. Seemingly, after every World War, there has to be some uniting force. And mm-hmm. when you think about what we have said about how the wars are planned, then the question: Who are the ones behind these international organizations, such as the United uh, Nations? And how how do they today push that mandate of uh, um, one world uh, government? 
Well, the interesting thing is, um, I mean, these guys have these plans, but I mean, not everything always does go to plan. And, you know, because um, there are so many people in the world um, that they do set up these uh, international organizations um, to try and foster world peace because there's so much encouragement. I mean, um, just going to the UN, I mean, there, there's a there's a good argument that we haven't had a World War Three yet because there was this guy called Alan Turing who actually um, shortened World War Two considerably by a code breaking the unbreakable Nazi codes. And if he hadn't done that, the world would be in a very different place today. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting you said that the UN was controlled by largely China. But I mean, the way I see it is um, that these are just organisations that um, are almost uh, um, not quite out of their control, but a bit more out of their control. I mean, um, yes, I mean, there have been people in the, the UN, they said the Iraq war was illegal, for example. Um, I, I, it is my understanding, though, the UN, it does, it, doesn't it have shareholders and um I think it does, or maybe I'm getting that wrong. But in all honesty, I just, I mean, I don't know that, uh, maybe I don't know enough about uh, the UN to explain, but I, I do know, um, yeah, things uh, don't always work out to how these super elites want, uh, even if they are financing a lot of money into it. And they don't always play by the rules of the UN as well. Um, sorry, I hope that answered your question. Um, oh yeah, I, 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 you have mentioned that uh, you probably you might get it wrong. It, it, it's not a field that you have gone into depth. Uh, you know, when you talk about conspiracies, there's been a lot about the UN too, and and, and mm. all other things, and how these global organizations they, you know, how you have got world banks, we've got. Uh, mm. What's the other bank that we talked about? The, the Bank for International Settlements. Yeah, the one that, and, you know, lends money to all these nations. And IMF. IMF and all that. And those seem to be very clear of the UN and, and, and other institutions. In, uh, the same people who seem to control those banks are the people who are controlling what is happening in the other nation in terms of in uh, activities uh, exactly and that's um how they do get a lot of sway on the un because of this uh pressure because these are big institutions for example china's actually um i think it's established a bank to compete against the imf and everything when you look into the roots of the imf and the world bank i think maybe it's the world bank that has shareholders um yeah you can see that these super elites are at the heart of them the, these um these Western kind of super elites. And um, yeah, I mean, if, if you want to know more, I mean, there's a very uh, interesting um, woman called Karen Hoods. And Karen Hoods was a senior lawyer at the World Bank. She blows the whistle on it all and says um, how uh, the World Bank is controlled by the super elites, how the super elites have hijacked the media. She even says they're planning a world war. I mean, so yeah, we, we've got to separate these organizations from the UN. The UN is kind of a more independent organization. Mm -hmm. And then um, these super elites, by manipulating uh, the members of the UN, they 
can control a lot of it and they manipulate them through the IMF and the World Bank, etc. How does the media play into all these conspiracies? I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's something that you really like want to, to talk about. Oh. Somebody, uh, one doctor said that uh, behind fake science is is the media, is fake fake mm. news. Or yeah, I think that's what the this is what we are saying. So it seems like the media plays a big role in education, in information, or informing people of one thing or the other. Our belief system um, are highly or mostly affected by what the media tells us, uh, and that that's the thing that I want you to talk a little bit as far as your research is concerned and the tying in with conspiracies. Yeah, uh, the media is a bit of a joke, to be honest. So I'll, I'll, cite, I'll cite a few people first and I'll explain how it works. So Noam Chomsky, one of the most cited academics in the world, he explains how the media is just is lies and propaganda, how it's not there to put uh, power in check, it's there to platform people who challenge power he's got a book uh, called manufacturing consent which i'd recommend to read um there's also that one yes excellent there's also um a bafta award-winning journalist called john pilger he writes a lot about how the mainstream media is controlled um there's also a former editor of the Wall Street Journal and Legion of Honor member called Paul Craig Roberts. He he writes a lot. He's got a website. He writes a lot about how um, the mainstream media is all controlled. And what we've got to realize is, I mean, once you realize 9-11 was an inside job, you have to conclude that, that the mainstream media really is um, a bullshit machine. So what do we know about the mainstream media? Okay. So there have been a number of people who said that the CIA as well has a large amount of influence over the mainstream media and they can control narratives. There was a famous uh, German journalist called, called Udo Ofkot. He wrote a best-selling book in Germany um, about how the CIA had controlled the media in Germany. Um, I mean, there was... Uh, I think Operation Mockingbird during the Cold War, where the CIA controlled the media, and um, I mean, if you um, if you go back to after when JFK was assassinated, I mean, the University of Texas Press um, they published uh, an academic work of how the CIA um, used discrediting campaigns against conspiracy theorists and against people who challenged the Warren Commission. So what we've got to know is for about 60 odd years that the CIA have been purposefully um, releasing like misinformation and disinformation to try and smear people who believe in conspiracies. And there's really been a psychological warfare launched by the CIA against uh, conspiracy believers. I mean, all this stuff I'm talking about, is all legit, but check it out. Uh, so, um, so we know all of this information we look at the Bilderberg group, we look at Bohemian Grove, all these super elites, they meet up with all these big media tycoons. So we know all the heads of the media. And I mean, if you if you look into a study like the US media, you can actually find that like 90 or percent of um, the US mainstream media is owned by just six corporations. They're very clever. They set up all these smaller corporations and change things. But um, 
so we know all the big heads of the media they meet up at the Bilderberg group um where like the Bilderberg group like like the biggest bankers meet up like European royalty meet up there so so we know they're all meeting up behind closed doors and we know they're all talking about something though we don't know what because journalists don't cover these meetings properly then there's this um, foundation that was uh, founded by uh, David Rockefeller, I think. It was definitely by A. Rockefeller. It's called the Council on Foreign Relations. Council on Foreign Relations, where some key um, professors meet up, some key heads of media meet up, some key heads of journalists meet up, and where the head of the CIA meets up. So we know they're all meeting up all these people in the Council on Foreign Relations. And we know the membership of the Council on Foreign Relations overlaps with the Bilderberg group. And we know members of the Skull and Bones chapter of the Illuminati, we know they're all dotted around these organizations as well. So there really is this structure and this network. And I mean, at the very least, I mean, to get into one of these big groups, I mean, you've at least, you've got to think like these people. You, you do you've got to be invited you've got to be like Clem so I mean even when uh, you've got at least think okay there's a collective consciousness uh, and a collective um, philosophy here in all these groups and um, and they have an enormous control over the media and of course like um, you can't bite the hand that feeds right at the top of the media you know you've got the boss they decide um, who's below them. They decide who's below them. And everyone works up really to please the boss. So um, it's really like you can't disrupt the chain of command in the media. Otherwise, you could end up losing your job. Um, so, I mean, this this is how the media is really controlled. There really is um, uh, control by the, these oligarchs and by these um, big elite groups to dominate what is told to us. I mean, if you re- and what we've got to remember also is that I mean, psychological warfare and propaganda has been perfected since the Nazis. I mean, there's Sigmund Freud's nephew Edward Bernays. He wrote a book called Propaganda, and yet all this crowd psychology—it's been mastered, and it can all be proven. Like they, they brainwashed women into smoking, for example, by convincing them it was feminist. So all this stuff—I mean, it's a clear-cut science. We, we know that we know that all this brainwashing is a clear cut science. We know all the heads of media and the heads of CIA and the, these journalists and professors, they're all meeting up behind closed doors. And then we've got all these whistleblowers as well, which really paints a picture of media control. And, and of course, like all these uh, whistleblowers, such as John Pilger, they provide evidence for their argument. They interview journalists. I mean, I mean, all the proof is there that the media is controlled and, um, bought and paid for and then as i said once you realize 9-11 was an inside job it really it's like holy shit yeah these lot are pulling the strings of the media uh i mean i mean there are other conspiracies as well we could get into jfk like the, the whole thing around how what why would the cia set up disinformation campaigns against people who criticize the warren commission uh, it, it must be because um, they were scared of uh, people calling out that JFK was um, killed by the CIA, which, I mean, I, I could talk about this for hours, but I'll just sum it up with this. Like there was actually a CIA agent on his deathbed. He said he was part of the CIA team that murdered JFK and the Harvey Oswald was just a scapegoat. 
so it, it, it seems like uh, people who are not part of the oligarchy that you're talking about, they get to benefit from the whistleblowers, people who are part of uh, the whole thing or whatsoever uh, they are up to, the oligarchy is up to. We get more information from those who break away or those who are uh, having these deathbed uh, confessions. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's a funny. Why? Why would you say this on your deathbed? I mean, it, why? I mean, you, you're you're about to die. It doesn't make any sense. Um, I mean, there's so much more evidence as well, like um, like how a load of witnesses went interviewed, how they decided so quickly, how like the best snipers in the world couldn't do what Lee Harvey Oswald did. Uh, it really is. It is a big topic. I mean, a load of people ended up dying. Uh, a load of witnesses on the grassy you knoll ended up dying shortly afterwards as well, which is very weird. Um, and, there, and then oh, I can say this, Lee Harvey Oswald actually had a CIA handler leading up to his death called George de Monshield. And like, um, J, I mean, Lee Harvey Oswald's wife says it's all a conspiracy. I mean, this guy, George de Monshield, and she was like, why the hell is this guy hanging around with my um, poor husband? Like, they've got nothing in cos common. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's not just, like, in intelligence, um, they say never a lot, rely on just one piece of uh, information, gather lots of information, and then you can almost do a statistical analysis. You can be like, okay, this happened, so this makes it 30% certain it's true. Then this happened. Okay, that makes it fifty percent certain it's true. Like all these things happening, it's like, all right, Jesus, are, how many coincidences can there possibly be? <laughs> Big tech, it's is quite new. It has yes. not always been there. How, if it has been crafted in, how does it participate or play the game of the oligarchy? Okay, so. Um, yeah, a load of them, they've been ushered into the Bilderberg group. And I mean, these oligarchs, they all have inner and outer rings. So like um, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Skull and Bones, I'd say, is one of the biggest inner rings. Well, the biggest inner ring really is like the Bank for International Settlements. And then like um, maybe you've got like the Skull and Bones. They, oh, they're, they, they're in the ring a bit. Council on Foreign Relations in the ring a bit. The Bilderberg Group is in the ring a bit. So this ring um, that um, overlaps into like these big bankers' rings, and uh, and like I know that like the heads of Google and even Bill Gates, he was he's attended the Bilderberg Group. So they're all kind of seduced in these groups, and I mean, one of the reasons people make it as well is because you know that they network with uh, the most powerful people on the planet. They, you know, they have access to the finance, they have access to the big business deals um, by doing business with these lot. And then not only that, like um, these, uh, these guys get lobbied at Facebook. They, they can get pressure from the governments. They can get pressure from like, uh, they can be, the media can be used to put pressure on them. So there really is quite, you know, there's a, there's a seduction attack and then there's a pressure attack uh, to get these social media giants um, into dancing to their tune. 
Well, I think we have to bring this to a close because this is really fascinating. There is a lot that we can, there's a lot that I can yeah. ask and, uh, you know, talk about in what you have brought up from war to oligarchy to yeah. the media and all tied in together by conspiracy theory. But one of the fascinating things is that this is a true conspiracy. To me, it sounds like uh, a paradox that you can say a conspiracy is truth because you will think that truth is independent from it. Once it's a conspiracy, we, we think it's something false that is made up. And if you say it's true, then it means you are removing all the cap around it or the court around it that refers to it as conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, there there have been a uh, psychological operations by the CIA to get people to think like that, and it, it's very hard to break out of it. But yeah, and I mean, there's so much nonsense around conspiracy topics as well, which make people turn away, such as flat Earth. There's a load of Nazi bullshit as well that's tied in with conspiracy um, believers. Um, so it's really a, a minefield that's got to be navigated through. But yet, all I would say is to people, keep an open mind. Don't just blindly believe what you're told. Do the research. Look into the people I've cited. All these people are real. All these people are legit. All these people give uh, evidence and give a good argument. Yeah. I, I just like the fact that you are referring to what we call authority. In philosophy, there are questions about authority. Who yes. makes one to be authority? Who decides who's authority? But we are not yeah, going to yeah. get into that. I just want to conclude with some few questions in relating to something closer to your private life. Okay. Or to uh, William Blake once said something quite interesting that man was made for joy and war. And then he goes on to say that then when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. In that quotation, he's suggesting that we live in a world where we are governed by the law of rhythm, where today we work out with some mood swings, we're feeling so low the next day, we're feeling so excited. In other words, some days are days of failure and you are really put down, some days are days of success, we are happy. I'm sure we have had an experience of both joy and war. We have an experience of failure. What failure have you experienced in your life and what have you learned from it? Oh, God. Uh, Yeah, quite a few failures (laughs) I can think of. Um, I mean, um, trying to pick out one. Um, I mean, um, a a big one for me... um, I guess would be uh, I've I've had quite a lot of failure at, at work, um, but what one of the things is that um, is because um, I've been saying all this stuff that I'm talking about, and it, it just kind of goes to show that um, kind of reinforces um, yeah you've got to kind of go along. Uh, I mean you've got to get along to go along a lot of the time. Um, but hey, maybe I can think of another one. Um, I mean, one thing is I I, I didn't get the I didn't get um, grades that I wanted years ago, and that's because um, 
I was too cocky. I thought, oh, I don't need to study. Um, but yeah, it, but yeah, um, it just goes to show you don't underestimate your enemy. Um, what other what other big failures? I I um, oh well, that's that, that's it's all right. Yeah. Yeah, that should be fine. You don't need to think. <laughs> okay, s- s- sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's fine. I think you have already, uh, for the record, you have captured that you have had some difficulties at university yeah. and also at work. Talking about when you talk about these things, you have yeah. received some pushback. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. As a final question, the future of this world is not in the old people who are on the afternoon or evening of their lives is in the youth. So, mm. so that youth are, are properly informed and liberated, what advice do you have for them as far as deciphering what is truth and what is conspiracy? I would say like we're part of the problem with all this stuff is we're in an old um mentality we're in an old mentality of um, as Stephen Hawking said our survival instincts have uh, been to uh, be aggressive and Hawking also warned this is going to lead to disaster so so what I'd say is instead of thinking oh um, I need to take this I need to take that we should think more cooperatively and this is why I think we should try and think almost um, more about science fiction think of um how um much potential we really have i mean i think the ultimate goal is to look look out to space look to the stars we we should be focusing on spreading out to the stars i mean let's get to the next level of evolution we don't have to you know stay in this uh, mentality of might is right and um competing here on earth i mean it, it, i personally i do i believe um, that there are aliens out there I, b- I believe in infinity and i think we should get on the world stage of of getting on the galaxy forget the world stage let's get on the galaxy stage and i think we should shift our mindset to that and so we, we and that will i think unify humanity as well we will cooperate together so we can uh, reach out to the stars reach out space and who knows what we might find we i mean it's just a universe of wonder so i would just say take the blinders off and think big definitely we want to think big as much as we 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 have difficulty in navigating the information that we find ourselves in sometimes it's hard to tell what's true and what's not true and uh, using our paradigm sometimes we may lose ourselves and find ourselves on the wrong side of uh, what we really want to believe and what we really want to come into our life because the mind has got a tendency of you know attracting of all kinds of falsehood when it's not mm-hmm. fed a proper diet of truth well your podcast yes. is conspiracy real where can yes. people find your podcast um I'm on a lot of platforms. I'm on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes. Um, yeah, m- many, many more. Just, uh, yeah, give it a search um, on your podcast search engine, Conspiracy Real. And yeah, check me out. I mean, 
I'm, I'm just a researcher. I'm being honest. So yeah, if come, come and join me and see what I've got to say. Oh yeah. That's, that's great. Edward, thank you so much for coming through and you have shared so much that I will need to research myself for myself so that I may know yes. Yes. about a lot of these things. Thank you so much for coming to our show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Enjoy New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy Utah. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.